<sighs> the comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. Hello, friends and neighbors. This is the Bill Press Pod, where we welcome you to this week's roundtable. Looking back at the big news of the week with three of Washington's top political reporters, and what a week it's been. On Monday, an article in The Atlantic where Donald Trump reportedly called American soldiers who died in action in World War I losers and suckers, which he denies. On Tuesday, a new book by Trump's former personal attorney, Michael Cohen, who calls Trump, quote, a cheat, liar, fraud, bully, racist, predator, and con man which Donald Trump denies. And on Wednesday, legendary Bob Woodward in his new book revealed that way back in January, Trump told him he knew about the danger of the coronavirus and how many Americans might be killed, but deliberately lied to the American people about how serious it was, which Trump denies saying. All of which put the White House on defense and triggered a torrent of charges and countercharges that'll continue through November 3rd. So what's the fallout over all of this on campaign 2020? Here to try to put it all in perspective for us, Leah Askarnam, Editor-in-Chief, the National Journal Hotline. Hello, Leah, welcome back. Hi, Bill. And Jennifer Habercorn, political reporter for the Los Angeles Times, and welcome back to you, Jen. Thanks, Bill. Nice to be with you. Thank you. Uh, Sudeep Reddy, the editor, managing editor, rather, of uh, Politico, joining us again. And hello, Sudeep. Hi, Bill. Good to be here. So, uh, what a week. What a week. Uh, <laughs> thank you all for being here. Uh, you know, the old, I, I remember so many times um, as a commentator myself, during the campaigns, the question was always asked, okay, at the end of the week, who won this week? <laughs> Who came out on top this week? <laughs> let, let each of you take a whack at that. Is there any doubt who won this week? Jen, start us off. Gosh, you know, it feels like the, the news um, spigot has just been on high for, what, years now? And um, I, what I wonder is what breaks through to the average person who does not follow everything that's happening in Washington to the minute like we all are. And I feel like it's the Woodward book. Um, I feel like those comments... Um, from the president about COVID had to have broken through and, and gotten to, you know, it got to evening newscasts, it got to the average person who only casually watches the news. And I think that's something that's going to stick with the president, particularly as we move forward and we um, hear Biden uh, presumably going after Trump repeatedly on coronavirus. So you would say that uh, Biden won the week? or certainly Donald Trump did not, right? Yeah, I'd say Donald Trump did not, because we can't really say that Bob Woodward did. Um, yeah. But Donald Trump did not. Leah, who won the week? Well, I actually had to rack my mind for a second and try to think of what Joe Biden did this week, uh, because <laughs> right. all of the news has been about Donald Trump. Uh, so, I mean, I totally agree that 
you know, Donald Trump lost this week. I think that if you wanted to point to something where Joe Biden clearly won, it would be his last month of fundraising. Mm-hmm. Um, he did uh, surpass Trump in August fundraising, and it looks like Trump is going to have a bit of a money problem, surprisingly, uh, through the rest of the election. So uh, there is one point where you can point to Biden clearly having won. Um, the rest, I think, is Trump having lost. And Sudeep, if you were thinking about what is traditionally called the first official week of the campaign, right, the week after Labor Day, that's when it all starts. This is certainly not the way, if you were running the Trump campaign, you would want to start, right? Of course, it's it's not. The, the week started with uh, what they were hoping would be a reset, having... Uh, having rallies, having a whole new uh, message, feeling like they were coming back um, into the fall, that the nation was coming back, um, that Trump was getting back into his rhythm. And what this has all done is it's just reignited uh, perhaps what is one of maybe even the worst stretch of the Trump presidency, uh, that period in uh, February and March, where Trump was just ignoring the threat. He was plugging his ears. He was acting uh, like he didn't grasp it. And what all of this does is it just uh, shows that actually he did grasp it. He was just changing his words. He was offering a different message to the American public than he was saying in private, which is the the one thing that I think gets through to the public. If, if it had been a, a message of something else that uh, that there were a lot of people who screwed up back then and they just didn't get it. Um, I think people might have actually forgiven Trump for that, given how many mixed messages there were at the time. But he did get it. That's what's most striking about this moment. And so uh, that, I think, is what will be remembered from the week in history. Well, um, I'd like to talk about the start off with the first two, I think, most uh, uh, explosive revelations in the wood in the Woodward book. And you know, Bob Woodward went from uh, deep throat thirty some years ago to big mouth today, right? Eighteen hours of interviews with with Donald Trump. Um, and the first is, as most of you have referred to, uh, what he said about his awareness of how serious the COVID, um, the coronavirus, was at the time, way back in January. So here he is uh, telling Bob Woodward he knows how serious it is, and here he is just a couple of weeks later, back to back, telling the American people not to not to worry. Well, I think, Bob, really, to be honest with you. Sure, I want you to I be. wanted to, uh, I wanted to always play it down. I still like playing it down. Yes, sir. Because I don't want to create a panic. You just breathe the air, and that's how it's uh, passed. And so that's a very tricky one. That's a very delicate one. Uh, it's also more deadly than your you know, your, even your strenuous flus, this is deadly stuff. It's a little like the regular flu that we have flu shots for. So, Jennifer, clearly, he says he knows it's so deadly, and then he turns around and tells the American people, don't worry about it, it's just, it's just like the flu. Um, I mean, this is serious stuff. 200,000 people, almost, Americans have died of this flu. Can the president survive that kind of a um, you know, a bombshell. Yeah, it's um, it, it's really baffling to know that he he took it seriously and did not convey that to the public. I was actually on Capitol Hill the day that that came out, and of course, me and several other reporters were asking Republicans about it. And the only Republican I heard 
somewhat defending the president on this was Lindsey Graham, which may come as no surprise. But he said, of course, the president should not be on TV saying we're all going to die, and that his actions spoke louder than his words, um, his actions to, of course, um, close off travel from China. That's the defense that Republicans have put out for these comments. I'm not sure that that's going to convey the public who finds out that the, the president knew one thing and told them something else. But that's what Republicans are going to say. And we'll have to see, you know, how how much the, the public responds to that. But like I said earlier, I think that this is the moment that's going to stick um, throughout the week. And uh, it's because the public hates hypocrisy. And that's exactly what we heard on tape, you know, there's no denying that the president said it. So, Leah, the president's response is twofold. Number one, I did not lie to the American people. I just told wanted them to, I wanted to stay calm. I did not want people to panic. That's why I deliberately downplayed it. And number two, it's Bob Woodward's fault. If this was so bad, he should have released this in March and not waited until September. Does either of those arguments fly? Well, people who are voting on the pandemic, who I guess are you are prioritizing the pandemic when they're choosing if they're going to vote for Biden or Trump, they're already voting for Biden. Um, we're seeing, you know, across the board in polling that when asked, you know, who do you trust more to uh, handle the pandemic? I mean, voters say Joe Biden. Uh, so I, I think it's I would just I think. Uh, warn for a little bit of caution about trying to figure out what the consequences of this would be, just because, first off, it's just happened. We've seen so many bombshells break throughout the Trump presidency, not to mention his 2016 campaign. Um, and, you know, I, I wonder how unexpected this is for most voters um, and for voters who do trust Trump's handling of the pandemic. I mean, they probably also already think that, you know, the pandemic has been overblown. So it's just hard for me to kind of gauge what the mm -hmm. how, how much of a change this will actually make in the trajectory of, of election season. And on that point, Sudeep, not to be too cynical, but to friends that I've mentioned that this could be the game changer for Trump, they always point out, hey, look at the Access Hollywood tape, right? We thought that was a game changer. Didn't make any difference. Will this make any difference? Yeah, exactly. It's, it's hard to know what is uh, really the uh, September surprise or the October surprise and, and what breaks through because there's such a small slice of voters, just so tiny, uh, who have not made up their mind about uh, Trump versus Biden at this point. It's kind of uh, hard to wrap your head around why that might be the case, but I, I do think there are some there are some people who might have uh, been on the fence who look at this and see their lives disrupted, see that they can't go uh, out on the street uh, like they could uh, eight months ago, who uh, can't go to the store, who have their their kids sitting at home staring at computer screens instead of in a classroom, and and it just brings you back to this moment, and we actually. Uh, our, our, our team at Politico went back and, and pieced together that same week in February. And when Trump was realizing uh, what was happening and telling Woodward, we had health officials who were not really giving that message. And if you can imagine the, the bully pulpit he had to, to, to come mm -hmm. out and say, this is actually a risk. This is worse than the flu. People should take it seriously. That would have been weeks where we could have had a, a different posture, a different response. 
that could have changed the entire trajectory uh, of where this went. It might have uh, bullied the people who did make bad decisions, uh, like in New York City and New York State, might have gotten them to do something differently if you had the president of the United States saying to take something seriously, which he, his, his general inclination is to downplay things. And so if, if he had come out and done something, that is what's probably in a lot of people's heads right now. Of course, these are all what ifs. You don't know what would have happened, right. but that's what has to be replaying uh, in the head of an undecided voter. Uh, and I would add, could well have saved who, who knows how many thousands of lives as well. Um, I'm interested that both, Sadiq, both you and, uh, and Leah sort of indicated that you think this election is just about locked in right now. It's not going to change that much. Is that what you're telling us? Well, the thing I look at the, the most here is the it's just the striking consistency in uh, overall polling data from February. Before the pandemic, Trump versus Biden, February, March, all the way through the summer. And now there have been just some some slight moves in uh, in the race. But uh, I, I saw one figure that in 500 days of polling of Trump versus Biden, Biden has been ahead the entire time, something that's that's uh, nearly unprecedented uh, for a presidential race. And so seeing that, of course, it's, it's not national polling, it's, it's state polling. Those are tighter. We got some polling this week that shows it's tighter. Uh, but it, it shows this remarkable consistency uh, in people's minds that that suggests it might actually be pre-pandemic uh, views that uh, that are fixed. Uh, is that what you're seeing, Leah, in your polling? Yeah, the last time I saw a national poll that had uh, Donald Trump in the lead was in April, and it was in the lead against Bernie Sanders. Uh, so, I mean, again, that's national polling, but it has just been remarkably consistent. And even more promising for Joe Biden is that in key swing states like you know, Wisconsin, uh, he's, uh, Joe Biden is uh, frequently polling at the 50% mark or higher, which just means that even if there are swings in undecided voters, like how there was in, in 2016, mm -hmm. uh, that's unlikely to swing the election away from Joe Biden, like more than 50% um, are already on his side, which means that any swings would just, you know, either boost Trump's margins or uh, boost boost Biden's already winning margins. Yeah. So, Jen, I want to move to the second, I think, most uh, explosive part of the Woodward book, and which, by the way, doesn't even officially come out until Tuesday. <laughs> you can't buy one in a bookstore until Tuesday. I know, I've been trying, but we already know so much of what's in it, thanks to Bob Woodward's media appearances. Um, and that, 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 that I'm getting to his comments on the military. Mm -hmm. uh, we've seen three in the last week, by the way, uh, starting off with the Atlantic, where he allegedly called those who had died in World War I um, losers and suckers, refusing to go visit that cemetery. Um, then the next day, in his self-defense at the White House, he said, well, the leaders of the military don't like me anyway. Based, I'm paraphrasing, of course, right, because they just want to start more wars so they can help out their, their friends and defense contractors a slam at the leadership of the military. And then in the Woodward book, and I apologize to uh, everybody listening, especially to you and Leah and to Jennifer, uh, he, Trump, told Bob Woodward that my fucking generals are a bunch of pussies. Uh, Jen, <laughs> this is so unlike any Republican who go out of their way to praise the military. 
Um, again, he survives this as a politician, Republican, running for re-election. Right. It's just another example of the norms that have changed um, and being, been compo- completely blown out of the water during the Trump presidency. Um, but, I mean, it, I do have to think that, you know, the, Trump's kind of standoff with the military has been going on for quite a while now. We we know that, um, you know, when he started his presidency, he loved his generals. He he praised mm. them all the time. And that, that went away relatively quickly. So, so did had they. Several years. So did right, the generals. Right. <laughs> so this, this tortured relationship between Trump and the military has been going on for so long. I'm not sure that this really changes the atmosphere much. Um, but at the same time, you know, Republican voters are, um, you know, have high praise for the military. Um, and, and I guess, again, going back to what Leah and Sadiq have um, hinted at or explicitly said, this, this issue seems to be pretty much in concrete. And I can't see that any voter would dramatically change their opinion um, based on this, only because we've heard similar comments from the president before. Right. Uh, Sadiq, uh, do you see any repercussions from the... Uh military among other Republicans or the military itself? Uh, It it seems like most Republicans and most people in the military are holding their breath, hoping uh, this this just goes away in a few months and that uh, they don't have to deal uh, with Trump. Some of the most remarkable uh, uh, reports, um, some in the Woodward book that I've I've seen, uh, show leaders of the military uh, going to uh, to church, praying during key moments of the of the Trump presidency, worried that we were going to end up in a nuclear war. Um, all of these are just r- remarkable scenes that that I don't think any of us grasp because we saw the love letters between Trump and Kim Jong Un. We saw what what looked like typical Trumpian theater, and what a lot of people in the military were seeing uh, were were the things that I think some people were warning of before the 2016 election that that Trump was was not grounded in thinking about uh, these kinds of threats, uh, did not have a, a deep appreciation for uh, for the the nuance of what was going on in, in these affairs. And, and you see that come out. There's kind of a, a simplistic view of, <laughs> of foreign affairs, simplistic view of the military. Um, and there, there are so many cases where it just looks like there are people around him, uh, whether it's his former chief of staff, John Kelly, or others, who are trying to explain, uh, as they would to a child, what the basic uh, history is and the basic uh, commitments of our people who joined the military. So, Leah, you, uh, somewhat of a presidential historian and the work that you do, have we ever seen with, from a Republican or a Democratic president this open hostility toward the military? I mean, certainly not in modern history. I think that's part of why um, Republicans are so concerned for their down ballot. Um, I mean, you kind of see them trying to play around it. And Jennifer actually mentioned this when she said she was on on the Hill, um, trying to kind of pick and choose what parts of Trump's answers to these really, um, really just, I mean, out there responses about the military um, that they are going to try to hang on to. And what's really tricky is that we're seeing Senate candidates all across the board talk about their experience as veterans or with their Mm -hmm. uh, constituents and trying to make sure that the uh, VA is well-funded, things like that. Um, 
and it's hard to hear those messages when you know Donald Trump is talking to Bob Woodward on the record um, about <laughs> telling. I mean, telling him about how, what he really thinks. Right. Uh, so much to talk about. We didn't even get to some of the uh, some of the juicier things that happened happened this week. Uh, let's take a quick break and get back to that. We're here with our roundtable today with Sadiq Reddy from Political the Ascaranum from the National Journal Hotline and Jennifer Habercorn from the Los Angeles Times. It's the Bill Press Pod Roundtable. And our roundtable this week, this Friday, is brought to you by the Smart Union. The good men and women of the Smart Union, they are the sheet metal air rail transportation workers who all united to form one union, the Smart Union, under President Joseph Sellers. One of the most, one of America's most dynamic and diverse unions, over 200,000 members. We salute them for their good work and thank them for their support of the Bill Press Pod. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. And we're back with today's roundtable. Hello again to Sidi Brady from Politico, Leah Scaranon from National Journal Hotline, and Jen Havercorn from the Los Angeles Times. Well, something very unusual happened this week. The Attorney General of the United States announced uh, that he had asked the court to take over uh, a state case up in New York State where a woman, Jane Carroll, had accused Donald Trump, long before he was president, of rape. That case has been continuing in the state court. Uh, and the attorney general said, no, we're going to take this over. We want this now to be a federal matter and take it to federal court. Sudeep, what's going on? Has this happened before? Uh, 
Uh, th this is a, a wild one. You wonder uh, of all of the president's uh, president's baggage um, for for this one to come up right before the election, and for for Bill Barr to basically be out there using uh, resources this way. Just just makes you wonder what, what they were thinking and why they would want to to um, ignite another story like this and remind everybody about what was going on. Just on the raw politics of it, uh, it, it seems just just wild to me um, that we would end up uh, end up where we are. But th this is Bill Barr uh, again stepping in 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 perhaps the most curious ways um, to uh, to defend the president and defend. Um, some of the things that uh, that really the government shouldn't like wouldn't normally be involved in handling. And who knows? And I'm not suggesting I know what happened in the basement of Bergdorf Dolph Berg, whatever the name of that store is in New York. <laughs> Obviously, I don't shop there. Uh, way back in the '90s, but uh, Jennifer, this what I get out of this. This means that we taxpayers are going to be paying for Donald Trump's rape defense. Right. And we as the taxpayers would be paying for any judgment that if it were to be awarded to E. Jean Carroll. Um, I think it's important to note that this case is actually about defamation. I think that yes. the rape allegation is um, passed. It, it can no longer be challenged. So this mm -hmm. is about defamation. Good point. Thank you. Yeah. And, and DOJ's argument is that Trump, when he made these comments, um, the defamation allegedly is that Trump saying that she lied happened during his presidency, and that's why they feel that they can make this case. I'm pretty skeptical that a judge is going to agree and say that DOJ can step in here, because if if that were to happen, um, the judge would be saying, okay, the president made these comments as a government official, um, and that's why the DOJ can represent him here. But if a judge were to say that, um, he's essentially, he or she would essentially be saying that the president was acting in his official capacity and a president acting in his official capacity cannot be sued for defamation. So we're kind of like running in a circle here and it's hard for me to see a judge agreeing with that argument. Um, but we'll see. Uh, and Leah, I know you've been reporting uh, how the Republican Party is is trying to reach out and to get suburban women back, right? That might have deserted him, or they're afraid they deserted him. Certainly in 2018, uh, and yet at the same time, here the president is saying his defense of this charge is, um, I wouldn't have, I, I didn't rape her, and I wouldn't have anyway because she's not my type. Is that a way to right. appeal to suburban women? You gotta wonder if they tried that in focus groups first. I, I assume not. Uh, I mean, Donald Trump right now, his main argument to women is that Joe Biden's presidency would put them in physical danger, which is really kind of an anachronistic, um, often kind of based in racism uh, argument that he's making. But I think that's his main issue there for for people who are voting on whether Donald Trump respects women or not. I mean, that was probably decided back in 2016. Mm. Um, that mm -hmm. I don't think that there's really anything new that will change people's minds about that. But I mean, if you're looking at polling, Donald Trump is just, I mean, his numbers with women are, are they're awful. Um, I mean, it's, he is, he has to get suburban women, yes, but just women in general are one of his absolute weakest spots. Um, 
and so you can kind of see how this this obviously wouldn't help but um i i don't know how much of this is part of you know his strategic messaging trying to get women back to him or if it's more of a, a personal point of pride for him uh, and as if anything could top that in terms of news value, yesterday uh, we heard not from intelligence agencies this time, but from Microsoft that there is actual uh, election interference going on right now, attempts to influence this election by on the part of Russia and China and Iran. No doubt about it, Microsoft says. They've seen evidence of it. Sudeep, what the hell's going on? Are we going to do anything about it, or just can we do anything about it? It appears that we have a repeat of uh, 2016, the, the things that, that we saw in the late stages of, of the election with uh, hackers, and in uh, many cases state-sponsored hackers, mounting attacks on key players in the election, on the Democratic Party, on the Republican Party, um, trying to, uh, to disrupt uh, more than anything, disrupt uh, our election and also engaging in, in uh, U.S. and European policy debates. This was this is uh, perhaps a little uh, better in this moment that we're we're hearing the alarms in September. We're, uh, mm -hmm. we're we're aware that this could be happening. I think it it puts um, not just the campaigns but also uh, the the rest of the public, including the press, on notice about what's happening. It puts. Um, it, it puts at least a bit more of a spotlight. What's just so striking about all of this is that I think every clear-thinking person in America um, can look at this information and look at public, publicly revealed intel from the, the federal government showing that Russia and China and Iran are all trying uh, to, to meddle in some way in our affairs. And uh, we should have a, a bipartisan joint collective effort attacking uh, all of this uh, in a more serious way. We've had four years to learn from it, and instead we see other reports, like uh, the report of the of a DHS uh, whistleblower this week saying right. uh, that he was uh, being uh, told to play down Russia uh, because the president doesn't want to hear it. Of course, the the folks at DHS uh, dispute that, say it's not true, but um, we we know that President Trump has a soft spot for Russia and for Putin for whatever reason. And it's all just really hard to wrap your head around in this moment why we're, we're not seeing people in both parties up and screaming about this, because this is the one thing that you would think would unite them. These are not actors that, that they've historically loved, Russia, China, and Iran. And so they should be able to get their head around it. Yeah. I also wonder if uh, it, it seems obvious that Russia would want Donald Trump to win. Would China, are, are China and Iran, are they interfering, Jen, because they want Joe Biden to win? And, and well, you're up on the Hill. What do Republicans, when you raise this with Republican senators, is it they just don't give a damn or they don't dare cross Donald Trump? Oh, I, I, it's definitely the latter. Um, I mean, there are very few Republican senators who are willing to say anything negative about the president outside of Mitt Romney. And, um, hmm. you know, they, they will say on one hand, they're very concerned about election security. And on the other hand, they can't cross the president. So it puts them in this um, weird dance that they do on several issues and, and have done for years now. Um, and, and, you know, there's been some skepticism that um, the administration is, is trying to make, or I should say that the 
skeptics um, are, are trying to make Russia sound as on the same page as China and Iran, um, whereas really Russia is the one that's putting in the most effort to try to undermine our election and that it's um, it's not a valid mm-hmm. tie of those of those three countries together. Right. Uh, uh, and, and Leah, do you do you see um, any what do you hear from state officials? Are they worried about this, uh, about hacking into the election systems? And are they prepared to defend themselves? So state officials have their hands completely full right now. So in addition to the threats from foreign governments of hacking, uh, they're also dealing with um, a lack of poll workers. They're dealing with a surge in mail-in voting. A lot of them are still in the courts trying to deal with appeals and lawsuits Mm -hmm. about when uh, ballots can be counted and whether they can use additional information to fill in ballots and how they get eliminated. I mean, it's just a being in state government right now trying to figure out an election is probably one of the hardest jobs. Um, Voting has already begun in North Carolina. Uh, In the next week, we're going to see other swing states, Minnesota, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin. Um, I think it's just kind of like drinking out of a fire hose for them right now. Um, So I think most of their efforts at this point, at least on the state level, is just making sure that people get their ballots. And, you know, that's even tougher, I haven't even mentioned, you know, issues with the, the post office. Right, with all the, all the controversy over absentee balloting. Uh, and finally, look, we are all members of the media, and let's be honest, there's nothing we like to talk about better than ourselves and the media. Uh, and so um, the this week there was uh, a released a telephone conversation, recording of a telephone conversation way back in 2016, during the Republican primary, it's the day of a Republican primary debate, which is going to be carried that evening on CNN. And the president, this is released by uh, Tucker Carlson on Fox News, uh, the president of CNN, Jeff Zucker, is on the line with Michael Cohen, the president's personal attorney, uh, making an offer and offering advice to Donald Trump through Michael Cohen. Here he is. I have all these proposals for him. Like, I, I want to do a weekly, you know, I, I want to do a weekly show with him and all this stuff. When is he back in New York tomorrow? Do you know? How many times do you think Cruz is going to call him a con man tonight? No, uh, Rube. I mean, uh, Rubio. Rubio. I mean, Rubio. Rubio. How many times do you think? A lot. <laughs> a lot. I, I say a hundred. So, so, so you know what? You know what you should do is, who's ever around him today should just be calling him a con man all day, so that he's get so he's used to it. So that when he hears it from from Rubio, it doesn't matter. Hmm. Hey con man, you know, hey con man, hey con man, hey con man, hey con man. Yeah, great. You want to get, so, yeah, get so like you know? Yeah, you want to get smacked so, like, in the head? They think that he thinks that's his name, you know. So there you have the day of the debate carried on CNN. The president of CNN offering Donald Trump a weekly show on CNN, assuming I guess he would lose uh, and not become president and offering some advice for how to handle the debate to be, again, carried that night on his network. Jennifer, um, is this just like okay in today's media world? Not at all. Um, you know, it's it's a little hard to remember 2016 um, because CNN has, has uh, you know, Trump has gone after CNN for being against his presidency in the last four years. But in 2016, you know, CNN played a significant role in raising uh, 
Donald Trump's profile because they aired all of his rallies and gave him significant airtime. And, you know, in remembering that time, these tapes make a lot of sense that CNN was trying to um, boost Donald Trump because they uh, thought that they saw that he boosted their ratings. Um, but as a journalist, those tapes just make me recoil because it's um, it's incredibly hard to see any journalist favoring any candidate in any situation, regardless of ratings. Uh, and Leah Zucker is quite a salesman in this conversation. He says, nah, Fox is no good for Trump. MSNBC is no good. CNN, we're the only network for Donald Trump. Gosh, I mean, I talk to congressional candidates and Senate candidates pretty frequently. Um, I can promise you that I have never offered advice and I never <laughs> would. Uh, I mean, there's a way to, as a reporter, you know, you can ask sources, your, you know, the candidates or even their strategists, you know, like what, what is your plan for this debate? And, you know, feel free to push back and be like, well, that doesn't really sound like it will work because blah, blah, blah. What do you, you know, um, there's a way to have a conversation about that. Um, but what, yeah, what I just heard just made me cringe. Yeah. Uh, and Sudeep, um, this is a, a new age, uh, I guess, right? But does it cross the line? Well, yeah, yeah, of course it does. It, it's uh, it, it's remarkable. Jeff Zucker, of course, he's the one who launched the Trump uh, reality show in the first place, The Apprentice, back in 2004, when he was right. running the entertainment division in NBC. And so to see us go from that point to him essentially pitching Trump as an entertainment candidate in 2016 shows us a lot what we were thinking of Trump at the moment as an entertainer, as somebody who was just trying to get a new show out of all of this. And, and maybe uh, when he leaves office, whether that's in a few months or a few years, uh, these these conversations will start again, and Trump will finally get his, uh, his his show probably not weekly, maybe daily, will where he'll uh, he'll be able to to get right into it. And it's still the same thing that's on Trump's mind. Is in his latest uh, press conference, the president recounted in perhaps one of the most bizarre clips uh, I've seen. I was just my jaw dropped when I heard it. He was just ticking off the, the shows that he was watching, uh, the Fox News programming that he was watching, and he ticked off show after show after show, like the Fox News lineup uh, on a weeknight, and then he went over and said he, he watches Fox and Friends as well. For, to no real purpose, he was just saying that he watches a lot of television. And so this is just all these words, uh, worlds um, merging into this moment where it really is uh, just a, a big television moment. Uh, and I, I must say, the irony, of course, is that Donald Trump has done nothing but dump on CNN ever since he was he was elected. All right, hey, uh, hey, guys, great, great conversation on the news of the week, um, and we don't let you go, of course, before getting your favorite story of the week. What was it this week? The one event or the one bit of news that made you stop and say, "Holy cow, um, that's worth uh, spending a little more time on," um, Jennifer. Let's start with you. Well, I'm going to focus on the California wildfires. Um, uh, you know, the East Coast-based press gets a lot of yep. flack for not focusing on the West Coast. So I feel it's important. I mean, California and Oregon and Washington State are just on fire right now. Um, LA Times has a really good wildfire map and has had very good coverage of the fires and um, the the role climate change has played in um what looks like it's bound to be the worst wildfire year on record. 
Uh, thank you for bringing that up. Um, it's very personal to me, being a Californian. Mm -hmm. uh, our family, uh, our son David and his wife and three kids, our three grandchildren live in Northern California. They have been packed up and ready to evacuate uh, under orders um, for the last few weeks. Uh, same with our family, uh, our son who lives in Oregon. Uh, and Jim, when you look, 200 fires, the last I saw, 200 wildfires, serious ones, in 11 Western states. And it all it's all climate change. Boy, if there's any evidence that we need, climate change is real and we got to take it seriously. This is it. Uh, how about you, Leah? Your favorite story of the week. So uh, it is a national journal story, but it's from Tom DeFrank, who I know is a, a friend Great of the guy. show yes. and also a, a a bit of a, a legend at National Journal, he, he uh, and he, <laughs> in general, just the the legend Tom DeFrank, uh, and he wrote an article after the Atlantic piece came out, recalling an interview that he did on background in the late 1980s with then businessman George Bush, uh, later Bush 43, uh, about how sources often deny. Uh, inconvenient truths is what he calls them on the record mm. when they've leaked on background. So he quotes George Bush as saying uh, after their on background interview, when this thing comes out, I'll probably be asked about some of this stuff. I'll have to say it's total bullshit. Are you going to have a problem with that? Which I thought was a great glimpse into the world of, of media. <laughs> and the world of politics as Mostly well. Mostly politics, more right. politics than media. <laughs> How about a Sudeep, your favorite story? You know, there are some, some moments where a, a tweet just catches your attention and you go down the rabbit hole. And this was one for me in this past week. It was from uh, our old friend Newt Gingrich, um, ah. who uh, had a tweet that said, Washington and Lee's university course on how to overthrow the state is a sign of insanity taking over higher education. The alumni should rise up and show how to overthrow a crazy college administration. I, uh, I said that I, I scratched my head for a few reasons. One, Newt Gingrich is a is a was a history professor briefly before he uh, went into Congress. So I was thinking I should take a look at this. And then when you get into the course, you see it's actually about uh, studying um, movements over time, whether it was Gandhi or whether it was in in America of how people used writing. It's a first year writing seminar on how to rise up. But the real chef's kiss part of this whole thing is that it is Washington and Lee University. George Washington, <laughs> Robert E. Lee, who both tried to overthrow a state, one of them succeeded. And this is just like, come on. It just shows how upside down our entire world is when you have knee-jerk reactions like this and you don't stop to think about what it is. It was just, it, it really encapsulated the entire moment we're living in. Yeah, when everything else gets dull, you can count on Newt, right? <laughs> and we have been able to for, for many years. Well, my favorite story of the week, I was going to mention the California wildfires as well. Jen, you beat me to it. Uh, <laughs> not, not as a favorite. I'd like to hear about it, but favorite that we ought to be paying attention to. So let me mention one other, which was Donald Trump's visit this week to Miami, where he went to Miami of all the outrageous claims that he has made. I thought going to Miami and introducing himself as the most environmental president ever really took the cake. I mean, and specifically, he went to Miami to say, I am here to support no offshore drilling off of Florida, Georgia, and South Carolina, 
uh, I want to ban drilling where it was allowed of these three states before. Well, the person who allowed it of those three states before was none other than Donald Trump himself, which he didn't mention. Offshore drilling off the entire Atlantic coast had been banned under the Obama administration. Trump reversed that. And now, uh, and now he's reversing himself uh, to uh, get some votes, obviously, in Florida and um, South Carolina and Georgia. Notice he did not reverse the ban for North Carolina because the governor of North Carolina happens to be up for re-election this year. He's a Democrat. He didn't want to give him any help at all. Uh, I just thought it was almost laugh-out-loud funny for Donald Trump to present himself as the new John Muir or whatever. Okay, roundtable. We've covered it, and we thank you, Sadiq Reddy. Thanks so much for being here today, Leah Escaranan uh, from National Journal Hotline, and uh, Jennifer Habercorn from the Los Angeles Times. Thank you all, and thank everybody for listening today. We love having you with us, and we hope we'll see you again on the next edition of the Bill Press Pod. Meanwhile, if you take time to please, if you haven't already done so, subscribe to the Bill Press Pod by wherever you're listening to this podcast. Just pull up the Bill Press Pod, click on subscribe, and then to um, follow us all week long, follow me on Twitter at Bill Press Pod, at Bill Press Pod. That's it for today. Stay safe, stay strong, wash your hands, social distance, wear your mask, and we'll see you on the next edition of the Bill Press Pod. 